Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to be reading this morning. Uh, from the book of Third John, and uh, we read the whole chapter. <clears throat> the elder, to my f- dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord. It's lovely to be back with you in in the south side. I've been a Christian for a long time now. Um, Yeah, it now sounds really it sounds a bit depressing when I say certainly over 40 years that I've been living for Jesus makes me feel older than I feel the rest of the time. But one of the remarkable things for me is that when we gather like this as God's people, when we come together as the church, when we open up God's Word, God says exactly what we need to hear. It's been a funny chain of events that's led to me being here. A few weeks ago, Ben sent me an email um, saying, oh, and hey, why, why don't you come and preach sometime in November? I could tell from the tone that he wasn't really expecting the answer yes. And normally when Ben sends me emails like that, I just kind of ignore them. Uh, but, but as it happened today, I should have been getting on a plane to go to a study tour in Israel. Um, obviously, that's not happening. And so when Ben sent the email, I went, oh, you know what, I could, I could do that. I've got two weeks that I, I didn't think I had. Now, I know a few of you, not all that many. I don't, I don't really know much about where Southside is at right now. 
We've decided to look at 3rd John. I'd be surprised if that's part of the Bible that you all went, oh, great, 3rd John this morning. More like there are three. <laughs> but there are no accidents that in God's providence, He has us here today in this short little letter for our good and for His glory. So, however we felt as we walked in those doors, whatever's going on in our lives, let's ask God to speak to us this morning that we might walk out encouraged with a clearer view of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Loving Father, there's nothing you love more to do than to come through on your promises. And you've promised to speak to ordinary people like us in the middle of the muck and mess of life through your Word. So, we ask that this morning that you'd come through on that promise and speak to us for the glory of Jesus and for our good. For we pray in His name. Amen. You probably don't need me to tell you that as human beings, we have a huge capacity to take things for granted and to do it very quickly. For many of us, all it took was for the Optus network to crash for a few hours, and we felt like we had been victims of the grossest form of human rights abuse. We were confused, bewildered, paralyzed, isolated. Then the outrage began. How could Optus let this happen? Shouldn't the government have had something to, to, to contingency in place? How are we supposed to do anything without the internet? It's very easy to forget that actual functional internet access only began about 15 years ago. But we take instant rapid connectivity completely for granted. And one of the things that does, it makes it really easy for us to forget what life is still like for most people on the planet, and especially what life has been like for most people in human history. You know, in the same way that my kids seem to find it very strange that anyone would ever listen to music on coils of brown magnetic tape spooled inside a plastic case, it takes considerable mental effort for us to appreciate that in the world of the first century, communicating with other people was a really tricky business. It involved neither posting to an instantly accessible global network nor even typing a few characters and hitting send, but getting an actual pen, an actual ink, and parchment, or even animal skin, and writing the words by hand. And that was only the beginning. Remember, there was no postal service. It took real effort to get to someone living on an island or living in a different country. And when this scrappy little letter arrived, how was the person at the other end supposed to tell that it was really from you? As for replying, you had to do the whole thing again. Now, there is a plus in all this because it explains why our Bibles contain not just one, but three letters from the Apostle John. First, second, and third John are a bundle of letters that were written and delivered together to a group of churches in what we now call Turkey, probably the same bunch of churches that got the, the letters at the start of the book of Revelation. First John is the main letter, contains the main message. 
Second John is like the cover page, kind of sums up the main point and explains that the writer wants it to be passed around all the other churches. And third John, basically, it says, you can trust the postman. Now, this morning, we are looking at the shortest book of the Bible. And because it's the shortest book, and because it's basically saying, you can trust Demetrius the postman, um, John doesn't waste a lot of time spelling out context. If you look with me at 3 John, he just introduces himself as the elder. Now, I don't like kind of bandy and Greek words about it, but this is an interesting one. The word is presbyteros. It's the word from which we get the name Presbyterian. He's the elder. Now, by, by the time he writes this letter, the apostle John has been serving in the church in Ephesus, not all that far away, for many, many years. He's probably the last surviving member of Jesus' inner circle, the twelve. And as a mark of esteem or respect, it seems that he had become known as John the Elder, or even simply the Elder. When my wife Fiona and I met in Aberdeen in the north of Scotland many years ago, our pastor was a, a, name, a man by the name of William Still. By that stage, he had been minister of the church for a staggering 42 years. Just imagine that. You know, Ben, in another 35 years. What would that be like? Well, he'd been there for 42 years, and by that stage, he was simply known as the minister. It was affectionate, respectful. It kind of fitted the fact that he'd been around forever. And it's like that with John. It's not that there weren't other elders in the church in Ephesus or in other churches, but John was, well, John. John the elder. And we gaze over the shoulder of this elder state, not statesman. We, we kind of listen in as a guy called Gaius reads this letter to the other members of his church, and we discover that even as he writes about something so mundane as trusting the postman, that John manages to tell us seven beautiful things about life with the Lord Jesus. All I'm going to do this morning is point out those seven things from this little letter. Here's the first. It's in the first verse, gospel-shaped friendship is beautiful. The letter opens like this, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, it's hard to work out exactly who this guy Gaius is, other than the fact that he's the one to whom John addresses the letter, and he's going to have the job of sending it around the other churches. Now, it doesn't help that Gaius topped the, the list of favorite boys' names in the Romans wor Roman world year after year. There are four other Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament, and it might be one of them, but who knows? To be honest, it doesn't matter much. At least not as much as the fact that John calls him beloved. That's pretty extravagant language, but it's not unusual in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls Timothy, a guy called Tychicus, Epaphras, Luke, Philemon. They're all beloved. Peter calls the Apostle Paul beloved. Now, John calls Gaius beloved. It's just the way in which these early Christians spoke of each other. It's just a little glimpse of the affection which grows naturally when we stand together and live together for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know that friendship is a complicated thing. 
At one level, it's not all that easy to find real friends, kind of deep friends who get us and look after us and stick with us and care for us. And I know that real friendship takes time to develop and has all kinds of twists and turns, both disappointments and delights. But sometimes in our search for and even longing for BFFs, we lose sight of the fact that there is something gloriously rich about basic gospel-shaped friendships. If you trusted the Lord Jesus and are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there are always people around us who, like us, love Christ and are living for Christ and serve Christ with us. It's a very precious thing. It's a beautiful thing. And this kind of friendship lasts. I very much doubt that John and Gaius got to hang out much. They couldn't even have been in regular contact. It was just too difficult in the ancient world. But the warmth between them is very obviously real, and that's because it's generated from their mutual connection to the Lord Jesus Himself. And that connection between us will only grow with time. Let's remember, if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, in the best possible sense, we are stuck with each other. So, just look around as we sit here this morning. This community is ultimately built on gospel-shaped friendships created by the fact that we all belong to Jesus. Some of those friendships have existed for years. Some have just started to flourish. Some are really just potential friendships. But let's not waste the remarkable opportunity we have as the people of God to enjoy the beauty of gospel-shaped friendship. It's surely part of what Jesus meant when He said that it's our love for each other that will set us apart. So, let's make the most of the opportunity that being part of the body of Christ brings, the opportunity to be real, to listen to each other, to share what we're learning, what we're struggling with, to pray for each other, to cheer each other on in the gospel as we remind each other of our weakness and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. Because that's a real privilege that comes with being part of the church. So, gospel friendship is beautiful. Let's not take that for granted. Even this morning, let's move towards someone as we seek to be these kind of friends. The second thing is in verses 2 to 4. It's that gospel-shaped care is expansive. In verse 2, John writes, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. I recently discovered that writing abbreviations in messages like TLDR, too long, didn't read, or IMHO, in my humble opinion, confess I've never actually used that one, that, that's not a new thing. See, the Romans were under this long before us. They had a common contraction, S-B-V-E-E-V. Now, it refers to Latin, so I'll not tell you what, what it actually says, but it means if you're well, it's good, I'm well. And that's basically where John's care for Gaius starts. He says, I hope you're traveling well, I hope you're not sick, and I hope you're in good spirits pressing on with Jesus. There's a word for that. It's called being human. 
The kind of gospel friendship that we're talking about spills over into caring for Gaius in a way which is real and actually works for him. John evidently cares for Gaius as a person. Now, we'll get to the specific gospel shape of this care in a second, but we need to start here. We actually need to care for each other as human beings. I know it sounds a bit stupid, but sometimes we forget about this in church. See, one of the pitfalls in trying to be an outward-looking, kind of outcomes-driven, missional, gospel-centered church is that we tend to forget that we are, well, people. We can easily assume if you're still functioning, then you must be okay, so let's get on with it. If the ministry that you're involved in, the little corner of the church that you're serving in, if that's going okay, well, that's great. It's easy to miss that you're falling apart or struggling or just a bit off. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a sweating, sleeping, crying, sighing human being. If I can put it reverently, I suspect that sometimes Jesus needed a hug or to laugh or to cry with someone. He certainly needed to take some time off at points because he did it. He was a real human being, and that's what we are. Now, that means that gospel-shaped care is necessarily person-shaped. This is partly what makes it so hard in caring for other people. You can't care for other people by numbers. Sometimes taking someone a meal is the best thing to do. Sometimes it's probably not. There have been points in our lives when we've been very well looked after by other people, you know, but I confess there were also moments when the prospect of having passed a bake for the 11th night in a row wasn't interpreted by me as an act of great care by other people. Sometimes it's the best thing to do. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes a quick email is perfect. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes a phone call is better. Sometimes a text. Sometimes calling round. Flowers may be the thing, or they may seem weird. A note through the door, an arm round the, round the shoulders, an SMS saying, can I pray for you, or I prayed for you this morning. Possibilities are endless, but they need to be person-shaped. See, gospel-shaped, Christ-empowered care does actually care for people. Thoughtful, tender, individually shaped for real people in every part of life. That's where John starts in verse 2. But of course, it's focused on verses 3 and 4. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you can continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. There's nothing better than hearing that people have come to Christ and are living in a way which is shaped by the gospel. It actually just doesn't get any better than that. You know that one of the reasons that God tells us to get together every single week is so that we can talk to each other about keeping going and keeping growing together, so that we can speak the gospel into each other's lives, as Tanya was talking about, because that's how we encourage build each other up. You tell me that you're keeping going with Jesus. You tell me what He's teaching you. And I go, oh, 
suppose I better keep going too. It's just how it works. So when we get together, we're supposed to notice the other people around us. We ask each other how we're going with Jesus. We share our joys and our struggles. We share all of life. Then repeat. We scatter to live for Jesus again, praying for each other as we go. We come together again next week. We do it all again. That's what God has provided for us to keep going. As I said, I've been following Jesus for a while. And, and even now, like some of the biggest encouragements in my life are when I bump into old friends or come across old friends and they're still living for Jesus. This week, someone sent a random email to the admin email address at QTC um, asking how I was going. I haven't seen them for 37 years. We did a beach mission together. For some reason, this random guy from America was helping out with a beach mission in Northern Ireland where I grew up. He'd been moving house, find some photographs from that beach mission, and then made a point of going online, finding me, sending me an email, including a picture of me 37 years ago. I didn't really thank him for that bit. <laughs> and he just said, so good to know that Gary's still following Jesus. Completely random. I went back to my desk encouraged. Okay, okay, I better keep doing what I'm doing then. That's how we're to serve each other. That's kind of the kind of gospel-shaped expansive care that this is hinting at. Then the, the third thing, verses 5 to 8, John says that gospel-shaped faithfulness is really generous. For John, there's one word that sums up this guy, Gaius. He's faithful. Verse 3, faithfully walking in the truth. That's his summary of living the Christian life. But from verse 5, he moves on to the way in which this commitment to Christ works out in real time. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers. They've told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. Guy's faithfulness to the gospel, well, what does it look like? It looks pretty much like generosity especially generosity to people who are passing through. Now, in the ancient world, hospitality was a really big deal. After all, it was what made most travel possible. You know, there was limited kind of in accommodation, but there were conditions. The Roman Cicero once said, the houses of illustrious men should be open to illustrious guests. Just think about that for a second. See, hospitality came at a significant risk in the ancient world. If you let someone dodgy stay with you, it reflected badly on you. But Gaius didn't think like that. For Gaius knew that to be faithful to the gospel meant being generous to his family in Christ, especially when those family members were people who'd made a huge sacrifice to travel with the gospel. And it turns out he had a great track record in this, de this department. Looks like he'd put up Demetrius the postman and others on a previous trip through his town. John says, keep doing it. Encourage brothers and sisters with the same extravagant generosity with which God has treated us in a way which is worthy of God. Why? Because the progress of the gospel depends on it. Look at verse 7. These people you have put up, they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
right from the beginning in the church. The principle has been the mission of God needs to be supported by the people of God. Nothing has changed. John, Paul, the other apostles all taught that the gospel should be free of charge to people on the outside. And so evangelists and pastors and church planters, anyone taking the message out shouldn't be a burden on those they're trying to reach for Christ. But if they're going to be able to do that, then faithful people like Gaius, the members of the church family, need to step up as they had been doing and offer them a base for their efforts on behalf of the name that is Jesus Christ himself. You see, to be faithful co-workers in God's great gospel project for all of us means being generous with our resources, whatever they are. And our focus, our prime responsibility has got to be to support what no one outside the church could ever be expected to support, which is primarily the work of evangelism and church planting and church growth all over the world. But it also means they're there to be generous in honoring and cheering people on as well as giving them a bed. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the sense of gospel partnership all across the New Testament is massive. The apostles are really quick to honor those who work with them. The, the list is very long of co-workers who are mentioned. Priscilla, Aquila, Urbanus, Timothy, Apollos, Titus, Epaphroditus, Clement, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Philemon, Demas, and Luke, as well as a few unnamed randoms, are all called fellow workers for the truth. We don't even know who all these people are. But the principle is it can never just be about us and what we're doing, because the gospel makes us look up and out to others. So, gospel friendship is beautiful, gospel-shaped care is expansive, gospel-shaped faithfulness is generous, and fourth, gospel-shaped leadership is humble, verses 9 and 10. Now, verse 9, John turns from encouraging Gaius in the ministry of hospitality to warn him against giving any house room to a guy called Diotrephes. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, won't welcome us. So, when I come, I'll call him out, as he spreads malicious nonsense about us. He's trash-talking us. In fact, not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He stops those who want to do so and kicks them out of his church. We don't know much about this guy, Diotrephes. He may have owned the house where Gaius's church met. He may have been an elder in another house church. We don't know about that, but we can be sure that he completely missed the point when it, had come, when it comes to Christian leadership. Uh, David Jackman, in a little commentary on 1 John, sums the issues up like this. The picture jo John draws of this domineering man is horrific. Destroying unity, flaunting authority, making up his own rules to safeguard his position, spreading lies about those he says are, are his enemies, cutting off other Christians. The catalog is appalling. This is what happens when someone who loves to be first decides to use the church to satisfy his own inner longing for a position of preeminence. Do you notice that this guy, Diotrephes, is the complete opposite of Gaius? He's refusing to lead in a gospel-shaped way or live a gospel-shaped life. And John says when he eventually makes it for a visit, it's not going to be pretty. He says, Gaius, 
stick to reading first and second John, stick to the gospel, and don't get sucked into acting like this. You probably know that from the very beginning, one of the biggest threats to the church of the Lord Jesus has always been big-headed, power-hungry, self-regarding leaders. Scribes and the Pharisees were like that in Jesus' day. Some of Jesus' own disciples had moments like this, and the problem didn't go away after Jesus' death and resurrection. One writer in the second century speaks of those believed to be elders who serve themselves, don't fear God, conduct themselves with contempt towards others, are puffed up with the pride of holding the good seats, and they work evil deeds in secret. And what was true in the second century is still true today. Anybody who's ever allowed to lead anything in church will have to grapple with this because we all have it in us to want to be first. Even those of us who don't want to stand at the front, we still like to be appreciated for what we do, even as we sit at the back. But the good news is that this little letter reminds us that Jesus both calls us and equips us as we lead to follow in His steps, to think and act like Him in the strength which He alone can give. You know that really in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, being a leader is mostly just living for Jesus at the front. And that means that the warnings to Diotrephes here ask some hard questions of all of us. Questions like this, when I show up in church, does it foster community, gospelship, friendship? Or does it make it harder for people to connect and encourage each other? Do I ever want to take control? Am I hospitable to everyone? Or do I pick and choose who I talk to and care for? Do I always have to be right? Do I subtly avoid those who disagree with me? Do I try to sideline people if they disagree with me or annoy me? If we have to honestly answer yes to any of those questions, then we're following the same path as Diotrephes, and we need to turn around and run back to Jesus right now. So, gospel-shaped leadership is humble. And then three more quick observations to finish from the last couple of verses. Verse 11, John says gospel-shaped decision-making is just sensible. In verse 11, he backs up what he's just said about diatrophies as he encourages Gaius not to get sucked into diatrophies-like behavior, but to be sensible. Dear friend, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. It's not exactly rocket science, but it needs to be said. In every situation, make the choice, the decision to act like Jesus in His strength rather than copying the power-crazed antics of His fellow church leader. That's why John says, whoever does good is from God. Diotrephes is clearly not from God. He is the poster child for error and evil. Gaius needs to forget about him and follow Christ in the power of the Spirit, for anyone who does evil has not seen God. See, John says, Gaius, be true to who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
imitate the one who is ultimately, persistently, perfectly good, following in his steps, choosing Jesus every step of the way. Live as those who've seen the beauty of the Father and the Son, in whom the Spirit now lives to think and choose and act differently. John says, guys, it just makes sense. Because this is who you are as a new person in Christ. John makes the point that the Christian life is a matter of living out who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ in a series of moment-to-moment decisions to honor Jesus, listen to Jesus, imitate Jesus in the power of the Spirit who lives within us. It's not really complicated. It's just hard. Do you want to know how to live for Jesus for the rest of your life? one decision at a time. It's the only way to go. None of us really knows what tomorrow, the day after, or this week, or the rest of this year, or next year, the rest of our lives hold, but we do know we're going to have to take decision after decision after decision, and what God asks of us and equips us for is simply to make gospel-shaped choices one decision at a time. That's why John says, don't imitate what's evil, but what is good? It just makes sense as the people of God. Now, let me ask, is that what we're actually gearing ourselves up for this week? As we come together today, are we kind of resetting ourselves, (laughs) saying, okay, what's it going to take for me to live for Jesus this week one decision at a time? Because the alternative is not really worth thinking about. So, two to go and we're done. We got to verse 12, where it becomes apparent that gospel-shaped integrity is really obvious. Now, in the ancient world, the postman, Demetrius in this case, often had a role in reading and explaining the letter that he was delivering, which makes the credibility of the courier pretty important. He doesn't just kind of shove the parcel in your hand at the door. Demetrius rocked up with a letter from John this morning. I'd get quietly ushered off the stage and Demetrius would come to explain 1st and 2nd John to us. Which, that's why John gives three reasons for trusting him. Probably gives three, because in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, it said, you know, you need two or three witnesses to trust someone. Here is the reasons. Demetrius is spoken well of, well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Why could Demetrius step into this kind of messy church situation as it was, read this letter? Well, he was endorsed by everybody who met him. John says he was commended by the truth itself, which is probably a way of saying he lived a thoroughly gospel-shaped life. And then John says, I know him, I trust him, he gets my stamp of approval. John says, when you meet Demetrius, you'll know he's the real deal. Because gospel-shaped integrity is kind of obvious. See, belonging to Christ, being united to Christ by faith, being born again, can really only lead us to one place. Believing in Jesus, obeying the words of Jesus, finding new life in Jesus, discovering we're lived by Jesus, being able to love like Jesus, can really only end up in one destination, in integrity. 
If we really are new creations in Christ, it's perfectly reasonable to say that, like Demetrius, our words and actions will increasingly match up, that we'll follow through in our commitments, that we'll be trustworthy, consistent, reliable, truthful, honest, because we're Christ's. The gospel of Christ produces Christ-likeness. It's that simple. We can go even further and say that God actually invests His reputation in us in this world as ambassadors, which is why integrity in the church really matters. So, right now, this morning, this week, are you living with integrity? Am I? Or deep down, do we know that at this moment we're living a lie, we're trying to silently cope with the gnawing guilt of knowing that there are huge fissures, contradictions, guilty secrets eating away at us? The trouble is, you see, when we belong to the Lord Jesus, integrity isn't an option. We can't actually relax without it. Yes, sometimes we're so stupid that we try to do this, but have you noticed, like, pretense eats our joy. It corrodes our security. So, we need to run away from it. How do we do that? It's not complicated. We need to run to Christ now. If you're hiding something from yourself or your spouse, your closest friends, or from God… Don't let today pass without bringing it into the light, bringing it to God, seeking help from your brothers and sisters. But there's no point in pretending because actually people can smell integrity. Gospel-shaped integrity is obvious. And one last thing, verses 13 to 15, gospel-shaped peace is peerless. There's nothing like it. Look at how John concludes this little letter. I've much to write to you, but I don't want to do it with pen and ink. It's expensive apart from anything else. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Now, I've no doubt that the Apostle John had been permanently shaped in a lifelong way by hearing the risen Jesus say these words. This is John's gospel, chapter 20. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked by the disciples for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. Then he said it again, peace be with you. Just a few verses, John says, and when they were there the next day, Jesus came and stood among them and said, you guessed it, peace be with you. Jesus' death and resurrection is supposed to bring us peace. Now, given some of the things that Gaius was going to have to work out in his local church, you could say he's going to need this peace. He's going to have to deal with Demetrius apart from anything else. But John closes off his letter like this for a deeper reason, bigger reason. Because he is utterly convinced that Jesus died and rose again so that we might know this peace, a peace with God that flows from the glorious knowledge that ultimately everything is okay because we've been reconciled to God and we're part of His people, and nothing can ever separate us from His love. 
This peace is the calm that flows from knowing that we can relax because whatever is going on in the mess of our lives right now, incredibly, we are friends with God, and that will never change. You see, when John adds, the, fr the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. He's not just observing social niceties. The language of friends is actually only found in one other place in the New Testament. It's on the lips of Jesus himself. Ben actually read it out at the start of the service. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants. I've called you friends. See, Jesus is the one who calls us by name. Jesus is the one who's taken us from being God's enemies to being God's friends. Our friendship with each other is a glorious consequence of the fact that God has given us the precious gift of friendship with Him. And that's the source of this peerless peace. You know, I think that so many of our issues, so much of our disquiet, so many of our struggles, so much of our inner angst, so many of our poor choices, so much of our unhappiness comes from the simple fact that we spurn the peace that Jesus Himself died and rose again to procure for us and then to hand to us. Often our single greatest need is to rest in Him. To take hold of these words, peace to you. And that brings us to the end of this shortest book in the Bible and this very short letter. You know, I love this little letter. <laughs> I love the fact that we have it the normal, necessary commendation of the postman who carried First and Second John. I love the fact it's so human, so practical, so ordinary, so honest. But you know what? Above all, I love the fact that oozing out of every pore in this letter is the savor of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Because everything that John the Elder, who's been following the risen Jesus, since the moment he stepped out of the tomb, talks about in this letter is embodied in the Lord Jesus. Because John knows it's in the Lord Jesus that we see the beauty of gospel-shaped friendship as he come and comes and befriends us. It's in the Lord Jesus that we get a glimpse of the expansive sweep of gospel-shaped care. Jesus embodies it as he breathes his last for us and breathes his Spirit on us. It's in the Lord Jesus that we see gospel-shaped faithfulness in its purest expression. It's in Jesus that we see generosity played out as He says, not my will but yours be done, so that we can come home to Him. It's in the Lord Jesus we see that gospel-shaped leadership can never be anything other than humble. It's in the Lord Jesus that we see gospel-shaped decision-making play out with perfect clarity day after day after day as He chooses to take up His cross for His Father's glory and our good. It's Jesus who lives with flawless integrity as He both lives and extends God's perfect peace to us. You see, this letter ultimately just shows us Jesus and invites us to run to Him. 
when we run to Jesus, what do we find? We find He's already made the first move. We hear Him say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on me, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A guy called Dean Ortland did some teaching for us a while ago, once wrote, Jesus never tires of sweeping us in, into his tender embrace. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. This is who he is. You know, if reading this little letter of John's has caused us to gaze at and delight in and lean on and marvel at and listen to the Lord Jesus just a little bit more so that today we might ask Jesus to do what He gets out of bed in the morning to do, to sweep us into His tender embrace, then our time together will not have been wasted. May it be so. Let's pray together. Loving Father, by Your Spirit, we ask that wherever we are in our lives at the minute, whatever's going on, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, that today You'd help us to see Jesus more clearly and to take hold of Him by trusting Him, that we might know His peace. Amen.